Good morning. We are beginning a new year today, this morning, for our Sunday mornings. This is the first one of 2020. And as we begin the new year, we're also beginning a new sermon series. Last year, we had this focus of eating with Jesus, and we encouraged you to develop a practice of sharing meals around your table and inviting others to be part of your dinners at home. We want to encourage you, of course, to continue doing that, and we will talk a bit about it as the year goes on. But we are shifting focus a bit this year. Instead of eating with Jesus, which was our theme last year, this year we're talking about doing what Jesus does. And to to begin with, with the year, we're starting with a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And the theme of this series is the same as the theme of the year. We're talking about doing what Jesus does. And Mark is a good place for that, because Mark is the gospel that's full of action, that's full of Jesus doing things. And so it's the best place for us to watch our Lord, what he does, and to do the same, to imitate and to follow. But before we dive in this morning, I want to start by sharing two common criticisms of the Gospel of Mark. Two common criticisms of the Gospel of Mark. The first one is this. Some people think that Mark is the boring Gospel. And if we're not careful, the passage that we're going to go through this morning, Mark 1, 1 through 11, will feel that way to us. It'll feel boring to us. And here's why. It's so easy for us to read, as we read, to skip over parts like the introduction. Because we're waiting for the good stuff. We know that Mark's gospel doesn't have the powerful beginning that the gospel of John does. And we know that it doesn't have any of the Christmas stories that we find in Matthew and in Luke. There are no angels singing to shepherds or wise men outwitting Herod. So we skim past it. We want to see Jesus performing miracles when we read a gospel. We want to get to the red letters. And in the first 11 verses of Mark today, there are neither of those. So sometimes people think that Mark is the boring gospel. Another common criticism that we'll hear, or that we hear with Mark, is that Mark doesn't teach that Jesus is God. This criticism is wrong. I'll give you that as a preview. But if you do some study on Mark, a few things will pop out right away. Mark is probably the first gospel to be written. It's probably the first one, sometime between 55 and 65 AD. And many people have believed that Mark sees a human Jesus and not a divine one. Mostly because nowhere in the gospel of Mark is there a clear statement that says Jesus is God. And some people use that as a reason not to trust the Gospels as a whole. So the theory works like this. They say that Mark is the earliest Gospel, so he probably has the clearest and truest vision or version of Jesus. And it is important for us to say that if they were right, they're not. But if they were right, then they would have a point. Since Mark is earliest, his vision of Jesus, his his communication about who Jesus was is probably the most reliable, and we would probably want to trust it if it were different than the others. 
But the, the theory works, since it's the earliest gospel, he's got the clearest v- version of Jesus, and that since he never declares Jesus as God, therefore the earliest Christians didn't believe that Jesus was God, that that was an invention that came later on. You see how that works. Well, we're going to shatter that as nonsense today. We're going to shatter the boring idea, too. My hope is that as we go into this series about doing what Jesus does, that we'll begin with a clear picture of who it is that we're following. So I'd like to encourage you to stand with me as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I want to say to start, to buckle up, we're introducing you to Jesus today, and he has a question for you. It's the same one he asks of his apostles later on, and it's, who do you say I am? Mark 1, 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Please be seated. Now I'm glad the believers and skeptics alike agree on the fact that Mark is the earliest gospel with the truest picture of Jesus, and here is why. We get everything we need to know about who Jesus is in verse 1. This passage is Mark's introduction, his way of saying, I'd like you to meet Jesus, and here's a little bit about who he is. And Mark gives us the good stuff right at the beginning, and he gives it to us again at the end. In verse 1, and then in just in case we missed it, in verse 11. Verse 1 says this, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The key is this phrase, the Son of God. In verse 1, he says it outright. And then in verse 11, just in case we missed it, God the Father peels back the heavens looks down and says, you are my son, to Jesus. There's no escaping it, there's no avoiding it, there's no missing it. Jesus is the son of God. Now that phrase is so important. 
And there's three meanings I want to give you. We could spend the whole sermon just talking about what does the Son of God mean. We're going to go quickly through three meanings to that phrase. The first one is this. It's an Old Testament meaning. The Son of God is another way of saying the Messiah. In Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You see, the Jews believed that there would come a Messiah. This person who would be both high priest and king. That he would throw off the rule of whoever was oppressing God's people at the time and establish a new kingdom. And the, the scriptures said that God would call this person his son. So here at the very beginning, when Mark says that Jesus is the son of God, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. There's another meaning here too. A Roman one. The son of God was a title given only to Caesar. You see, Julius Caesar had declared himself a god. He'd expected to be worshipped, and people didn't take to that very well, right? So, so everyone knows what happened to Caesar in, I think it was, 44 B.C. He was killed. So his nephew, who became the next Caesar, had an idea. I'm not going to offend everyone so much by saying, I'm God, I'm going to tell them I'm God's son. One step away, not claiming quite so much as he did. And every Caesar afterwards declared himself also the son of God and expected to be worshipped. So when the Roman world heard this phrase, they knew who it meant. This phrase, the son of God, was reserved for the ruler of the known world. Mark says right away in verse 1, that's who Jesus is. And then there's a third meaning, a New Testament meaning, a gospel meaning to this phrase. In the gospels, the phrase son of God means that in Jesus, God had become present, had become human, had come to live with his people, to set up his kingdom, to take on himself the fullness of their plight, and to bring about a new creation. That in Jesus, God had come. And to prove that last meaning, Mark quotes two verses right afterwards. And both of them are prophecies about the ministry of John the Baptist. The first one is from the, the, um, the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. In other words, God is saying, I will send John the Baptist to prepare the way before me. Who does John the Baptist prepare the way for? He prepares the way for Jesus. This prophecy about the coming of God is about the coming of Jesus. And then the next one, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John the Baptist will be like a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. 
make straight paths for him. Now that word Lord in the Old Testament doesn't mean a person who held land. It's not a, 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 a phrase that just means respect. That is the name of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is saying that John the Baptist will be preparing the way for God himself. And he prepares the way for Jesus. So the Messiah, the human being that will be both high priest and king, who's taken for himself the title that's reserved for the rulers of the known world, will also be the presence of God himself. He'll be a human being and he'll be God. In other words, to everyone who's ever asked, where is God? Why is he so far away? Why doesn't he come down and make things better? Jesus is the answer. Mark is saying right at the beginning, he's here. He's saying he's come into a world, into the world as a human being. God himself is the Messiah and God himself will be king. And what would you expect if that were to happen? I think we'd expect that every single thing about the world will be changed, redeemed, restored, and remade. Sin is going to be defeated. Death will be overcome. And every single person who declares their allegiance to him will be saved to dwell with him forever. I told you that Mark is the action-packed gospel. But can you believe that some people want to say that Mark is the one that's boring, that doesn't know that Jesus is God. And already this book is full of the lordship and the godhood of Jesus. And it's just verse 3. Mark is the gospel that most clearly says this man, the Messiah, is a human being and he's God. So verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist was what is called a Nazarite. Now that was an Old Testament commitment to holiness, kind of like a monk would be today. And he was preaching that people needed to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. In Jewish practice, like in Christian practice, Baptism was a symbol of being washed clean of sin and being initiated into a movement, to something new. And he's in the desert. And he's in the desert because the desert was very important for the Israelites, for God's people. It's where they go to flee from wickedness. And they have all through their story. The desert is where Moses fled from Pharaoh. It's where David fled from Saul, and it's where Elijah fled from Jezebel. In each case, this representative of God's people goes out to the desert, and in each case, God shows up in a powerful, powerful way. And so John the Baptist goes out into the desert, and the people go to him. Starting with verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. 
confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark has already told us the one coming after John is God himself. And God himself does come in Jesus. And somehow John knew that that would be. Somehow he knew that the Messiah was going to come after him. And he knew that we wouldn't just be receiving forgiveness, although we'd get that too, but we'd receive God's own Holy Spirit. And then it happens. Could you imagine that day? You're John the Baptist, or you're one of his followers, and, and you're out baptizing all these people that have come to you, repenting, knowing that they need to get their lives right with God, that they've been going along the wrong path, and they're ready to turn around. They're ready to move in the direction God wants them to. They're ready to commit. And person after person comes. I, must, I imagine that must have been thrilling to see such a successful ministry in John the Baptist. And he kept saying, one day the Messiah is going to come. One day the Messiah will come. And then comes John's cousin, Jesus. And there's a lot of questions. Did John already know who Jesus was? I have to be honest, I don't think so. Maybe he had an idea. Maybe he had a, a clue or an inkling that there was something different about his cousin Jesus. But then he comes and he baptizes Jesus. And as he does, the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then the voice of God speaks. Verses 9 to 11, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I don't think John had any questions after that. Now, Mark's made it clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. He could not have been clearer. But he's also human. He's born from the Virgin Mary. Now, the scriptures teach us that, that when he came, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. And so, and so all that power that comes from being God, he'd emptied himself of. And so the Holy Spirit settles on him like a dove. In the Old Testament, when Elijah or Elisha or one of the other prophets would perform miracles, they always did so, not by their own power, of course, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And for Jesus, it would be the same. Though he's God the Son, he would, like a prophet, perform miracles by the power of God's Spirit. You see, I think it would have been easy for, easier for Jesus to hold on to all of that. You see, it's, it's hard to make God 
suffer. It's hard to, to, to make God hurt when you drive a nail through his forearm. And if Jesus had held on to all of that godhood, all that power and privilege that came with who he was, then he would have never been able to be sacrificed for our sins because you see, you can't kill God unless God the Son empties himself, makes himself vulnerable, comes born from a virgin as a baby in a manger, vulnerable, dependent. And so I think Jesus cried. People ask, what was Jesus like as a child? I think Jesus was a child. I think he was a good child. But I think he ran, he fell, he skinned his knee. When he ate, he went to the bathroom. I think sometimes he had the flu or a cold. He got sick. And then one day when he's an adult, the Holy Spirit descends on him and in a way that had never done before, because we see power and miracles in Jesus' ministry that are unrivaled from any stories in the Old Testament. Jesus was God's Son. He was the Messiah. He was a prophet, too. This is who He is. But the most incredible thing about Jesus is this. Jesus is the proof that our God does not leave us alone. He is the proof that our God is not far away. He comes and He stays and His love is absolute. You see, this mess of people on planet Earth, there's so much good in humanity, but there's so much bad too. And none of us are capable of earning this from God, of being so good that we deserve for God to have come and died for our sins. He didn't have to. But because of his original purpose, because of his promises he'd made, because of his desire to glorify his own name and his love for all of us, he came, emptied himself, lived as a human being and God in the flesh. And he did that with absolute and unconditional love. One of the things we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark as we go through it is over and over again, the apostles are just so foolish. I mean, they're so foolish. Mark is the Gospel that's harshest on the apostles. We think that Mark's stories came from the Apostle Peter, who, as he looked back on his own activity during the ministry of Jesus, must have realized, I was a fool so many times. And Jesus' compassion on his apostles is continual. We're going to see Jesus be, be tired after long days of ministry and be hounded. People will not leave him alone, much the same way we wouldn't want to leave someone alone if we saw them capable of performing the kinds of miracles Jesus could perform. And every single time the crowds chase him down, even though he tries for rest, he turns and has compassion. His love is absolute. And that remains true 
today. Because as we, Christians, receive God's Holy Spirit, God comes to dwell with us and his love for us is absolute. No thing we could ever do would ever chase him away. As long as we desire him, he stays with us. Never will he say, your sin is too great, I cannot be here anymore, and leave. Never will he say, you failed or stumbled too many times. Never will he say, I've given up on you. Never. God's love for us is absolute. And we see that picture clearly in the life and ministry of Jesus. He is proof that our God does not leave us to our fate, that our God does not abandon us in our need, that he comes and he says, I'm here. And Jesus asks us, who do you say I am? He asks that specifically to his apostles later on in the Gospel of Mark. But his life asks us that question. You see, if God just stayed far away, we could probably choose to react to him however we wanted to. But he doesn't. He comes. He invades. He comes to be a part of our lives and he says, who do you say I am? Because we have two choices. Once we've decided that we believe that he is who he says he is, once we've decided that he is Lord and Savior, once we are willing to acknowledge that Mark was telling the truth and Jesus is the Son of God, we have two choices when Jesus asks us, who do you say I am? Some of us say, Jesus, you're someone I want to follow me. And some of us will say, Jesus, you're someone I'm going to follow. And those answers sound similar, but they are worlds apart. You see, if I decide that Jesus is someone I want to follow me, then, then what that's going to mean is I get to live my life however I want to. And I just want Jesus to be along for the ride. Right? Jesus, I'm going to go to Sunday, Sunday church, and I'm going to go to Sunday school, and I'm going to do, do a lot of the right things because you know, it's how I've been raised. These are the traditions, and they make me feel good. And I just want you to, to be along. Come with me. We can live our lives that way, but here's the thing. He will always follow behind us because he never leaves us alone. If we decide to live that way, we will never be away from him, but he will follow us always saying, turn around. Come to me. Follow me. What I have for you is so much better than what you will stumble your way into if you lead me around like this. If you make me follow you, you're going to live a life of short-term pleasure. You're going to live a life that you've built based on some dream you were told you were supposed to have when you were a kid. You're going to try to get the, the house you want to have and the marriage you want to have and the job you want to have and you're going to have all of those things and in the end, you're going to find it empty. 
because you made me follow you. But if we turn around, if we repent of that, and if we will follow Him, it changes everything. One of the things we have to give up is, is all those, those expectations we had when we picture, this is what my life is going to be. The answer to those is maybe. Maybe that dream you've had of what you wanted to be since you were a kid is still what's going to happen. My first dream was that I would be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I can't really blame Jesus for that one not working out. But I knew what I was going to be. I was going to be a martial arts instructor, and that's what I did for a long time. And I knew from the time I was about six years old and I realized a turtle wasn't in my future that I wanted to be a karate teacher. And Jesus took that dream and he changed it. And I'm so glad he did. You see, when we follow him, he takes what we've already got in mind and sometimes he transforms it, redeems it. Sometimes he throws it away and gives us something new. But what we can always know is that what he gives is better. It may not be easier. Lord knows it may not be easier. Lord knows that following Jesus does not mean we have no hardships or trouble. Anyone who's been following him for very long knows we have hardships and trouble. But what it does mean is that as we follow Him, He changes us. He transforms us. He uses us to be vessels of His love in the lives of other people. If we want Him to be someone that follows us, our lives will be unredeemed. We will not be transformed. We'll resist the Holy Spirit. And in the end, we're without the promise of being with him forever. But if we will follow him, if we will say to Jesus, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior, I give my allegiance to you, everything is different. It requires us to give up this primacy that we want to have over our own lives. I want to be first. Jesus says, no, you need to follow me. And if we do, we will find a joy that's different than anything else we could ever have. We will find a purpose truer and greater than any we could make for ourselves. And we will find lives filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit as he makes us more like himself. So as we do this, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, I want to challenge you to decide. Hopefully you already have. Hopefully everyone in this room has already decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. Maybe you decided that once and you feel like that's not really the case anymore. When you were younger or some time ago, that commitment, that passion, that zeal for following him was there, and now you're dragging him along. If that's you, it's time to change. This is your invitation and your opportunity, and I want to call you to do that, to repent and turn back to him. 
Maybe you've never made that decision before. Maybe you didn't even know that he was following you around, telling you over and over again, come to me. If that's you, I want to encourage you today or any time to make that commitment, to turn to him and to say, I want to be yours. As we go through Mark, you're going to have opportunity after opportunity to be encouraged and challenged to make that decision. And the thing about being a Christian is we have to make it every single day. Because our hearts aren't transformed in a moment. Our hearts constantly tug us in the opposite direction of where the Lord wants us to go. And we must decide again and again, Lord, I'm not going to drag you with me. I want you to take me with you. Now, Jesus has a lot to say that's hard to hear. And as we go through this series, we're going to dive into a great deal of it. As a church, we need to be ready to hear the Lord speak into our politics, into our worship, into our practices with money. We need to understand and remember there's a reason that at the end of this story they put Jesus to death. And it's because he has this way of challenging things dear to our hearts. And if we say, Lord, I'll follow you, just leave this alone, then what's happening is we are not actually following him. And we will not, as a body, be able to dive into the teachings of Jesus without being seriously Challenged. It's going to happen. If you go through this series and you're here every Sunday and you're never very uncomfortable, then I think I've, either you are much holier than I, I know any of us to be or I've done something wrong. Because the, the words of Jesus, they're hard. And as a body, as we dive into these and chew on these things together, there's going to be things we need to decide. Am I going to hold on are we going to hold on? Or are we going to let Jesus have his way? So as a body, every week, we're going to talk about a way that we can, as a body, as a church, apply Jesus' teachings, Jesus' actions to our own practice as a church. Every week, there's going to be an application for what Calvary can do to do what Jesus does. And then also, every week, we're going to talk about a thing that we, as individuals, need to be willing to do. There's going to be an opportunity to make a practice of what Jesus does and apply it to our own lives. And I want to encourage you to buckle up. If we will make these holy habits a part of our walk with the Lord, we will see a transformation happen in a way we didn't know it could. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He always surprises and surpasses expectations. So my encouragement to you this week is to make yourself ready. To ask yourself, are you really willing to follow? Because it's hard. I cannot read a gospel and not have a crisis of heart. Jesus does it to me every single time. Part of this series is going to be my invitation to you to join me in the crisis Jesus causes every time I dive into his words. 
My hope is that you'll read the, the Bible reading plan and you'll have those crises of your own as well. As you come to something and you think that the church needs to know it or hear it, or perhaps consider something different, I'd love for you to share that with me. Or if you come to something and Jesus has just challenged the way you've lived your life as a Christian, I'd love to hear about that too. But I want us to be ready. I want us to be willing to say to our Lord, when He says, who do you say I am? For us to say, you are Lord. You are God. You are Messiah. You are King. And we will follow you. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We love you and we praise you. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts for you. Lord, those of us who are in our walks passionately committed to you already, we pray for a deepening of our faith, a strengthening of our commitment. We ask for that to come by the power of your Spirit. Lord, for those of us who are struggling, whose faith feels lukewarm, stale, we ask, Lord, that you would breathe fire into it, that you would make our passion for you renewed and restored. Bring us to that place of passionate faith again. And Lord, for anyone that's here that's not committed to you, I pray that you would call to them and call to them clearly. Don't let us walk away, Lord, not one more time, but encourage us to turn, to commit to you as Lord and Savior and to become one of your people. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.